welcome back to the 1099. Thank you so much for joining us. I am your host, Joseph Noop, as always, and I'm very excited to have my good friend, Ian Boudreaux here. You know him from PC Games in Vice, Wargamer, Rock, Paper, Shotgun, uh, and Ian, man, it's been, ever since I got to know you through, like, the Game Informer intern program, uh, I, I must say I've always, like, looked up to your work and looked up to you as a person. So thank you for coming on the show and uh, giving me like an hour or so of your time, man. Jeez, Joe. Well, that's absolutely so kind of you to say. I, <laughs> I, I thought we, we had a wonderful time uh, finally meeting up at GDC earlier this year. I thought that was a fantastic time. We had some fantastic ramen. Yes. And um, I think even though we had to wait like an hour and a half. We did, it, but yeah. it was a pleasant conversation. I think we had some yeah. cool people around. So I thought that, no problem there. But no, I'm super happy to be here. And thank you so much for uh, asking me to be a part of this. So yeah, good yeah, to talk. Yeah, no. I, uh, I, I love... The 1099 is a weird beast because as as listeners will know, uh, of course, there there's no like hard definition of what a 1099 guest can be. Um, if folks listen to the most recent episode uh, with scissors from the phase Fortnite clan. Uh, I, yeah, I forced a Fortnite pro to talk about mentorship <laughs> and, and like non Fortnite things. Cause I'm like, damn it, I'm making this an interesting interview. Um, and you know, Dmitry Gluhovsky and all this, but I love to bring it back to writers and, and people in games and geek culture media and really delve through their work and what it says about uh, the way we digest games and the way we possibly look at the world around us. And that's honestly what today is about is what do war games say about us, as the title implies. Um, Ian, you yourself, you have a background as a military journalist, a science writer, and you do have a background as a a member of the armed services. Uh, I, I actually neglected to ask, what branch? I was Army. Yeah, army. I, I joined in uh, 2002, and I did. I was active active duty uh, for five years, and then National Guard in New York for three years after that. And we, uh, as part of uh, on on the week like post E3, when I was like dead to the world, um, I John Phillips, uh, a former Marine and uh, host of Super Deformed Games Cast, was gracious enough to like let me use his recording about um, Call of Duty's uh, recent, you know. Uh, presence in the news and use that as an episode and just kind of sharing his message. But I've been fascinated to learn more about um, different sides of uh, our military and uh, what perspective, what those perspectives can say about video games. Um, Also at E3, I'm trying to line up an interview with a a gentleman who organizes some of the military's esports. So this is going to be, this is going to turn into a military podcast for for a brief window of time. And I'm very excited for that. Uh, but yeah, Ian, tell me, tell me, I guess from the beginning, what came, what came first, uh, serving as a member of the armed forces or as a military journalist, what was your first kind of, uh, uh, window into that world? So, well, okay. Uh, yeah, it's complicated, but I mean, so I, I graduate, this dates me pretty specifically, but I mean, I, I graduated university in 2000. Two, um, uh, with a journalism degree, and obviously you know, the country at the time was reeling from the whole September 11th thing. And um, what kind of gets forgotten? I mean, that was obviously a horrible uh, and deeply weird time. 
mm-hmm. but what also had happened in over the course of the four years that I've been in undergrad uh, studying to become a journalist was that the first of what would ultimately be several and an ongoing process uh, uh, of Every couple of years, there's going to be a third of America's editorial staff is laid off. Hmm. Um, so there's just this massive layoff the, the, right before I graduate, like a couple months before I graduate, this happens. And, and so there's, there are no reporter jobs. I mean, even back home in my hometown at, at a small newspaper where I ultimately wound up working once I finished my uh, active duty stint, um, there's nothing. There, there's absolutely nothing to go into if you didn't have... You have internships if you didn't have, you know, experience um, already uh, because there was a ton of very experienced reporters and editors who were on the street looking for jobs already. Yeah, Um, that's the case, I think, still now. I mean, every single time a Gawker Media or um, or or say, you know, I've, I've worked for Vice, you know, they've had restructurings and things. Every time that happens, a bunch of people get laid off. And they're the ones who are looking for jobs and they're in, in kind of the the pole position relative to where a lot of, you know, newcomers are. So those two things combined, you know, September 11th and this whole, you know, um, uh, this first round or at least the first relevant round to me of, of uh, editorial layoffs combined. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, why don't I go and be private joker for the army? And, uh, it, you know, you, you go and take the ASVAB test and uh, did pretty well. So they gave me the choice to be, uh, what's called a 46 Quebec. I think it's, it may have been consolidated now, but at the time that was what public affairs specialist was. It was journalist at the time. Now it's public affairs specialist. But, um, but yeah, so I did that and uh, went off to Fort Benning where they trained infantry people, uh, which was <laughs> great. And um, uh so, so that was the way that it kind of went. I, 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 I had been interested in the military, not, not as a, uh, like, I, I wasn't like building towards that at all. Um, but kind of a combination of circumstances kind of happened and that became an attractive thing for me. Plus there was the GI Bill and I wound up using that later on. But um, so, right. That was, that was basically what happened. Well, so what was uh, an average day in the life of, of a military journalist? I mean, is it is it kind of like a um, – I, I have minimal experience with like my professors at Ball State would kind of do a couple of like uh, – one of them was a like former uh, uh, military journalist slash uh, – possibly he might have been a PR person if I'm being correct. I forget what it, – NCO? I don't know. But uh, – what what was your average day like and uh, what kinds of things were you covering and what kind of – did you have the same like level of freedom or communication levels as a like man-on-the-street kind of journalist? Uh, you know, interesting question. So uh, a couple caveats before I uh, yeah. answer it. One is that it's been a yeah. while since I've been in. Um, I got off of active duty in 2007, so this is all 12-year-old information. <laughs> um but um, yeah, a day begins generally at uh, 5.36 or 7 uh, with PT, with your company. Um, you go back and uh, that, that's, you know, generally if you're a military journalist, you're with what's called a headquarters company. It's a bunch of sort of admin types uh, like your accountants and people who handle awards, uh, your human resources type. 
uh, type folks. Um, and then the rest of your day depends entirely on where you are and uh, the kind of unit you're in, the kind of division you're in. My first assignment was in, okay, look, and this is 2003, right before we invaded Iraq, or right after we invaded, invaded Iraq, I got these orders. Uh, instead of going to Iraq or Afghanistan, uh, the army in its wisdom sent me to South Korea, which is on literally the other side of the world. Um, <laughs> so I was there for a year, but with the second infantry division. So we were doing infantry division stuff all the time. And uh, the two ideas is a little unique because of the fact that it, well, at the time it was, uh, it, you know, incorporated uh, armor and mechanized infantry, uh, uh, standard infantry, cavalry. Uh, we had air assets, artillery. It was a very self-contained, you know, combat fighting division at the time. Um, so, you know, we would <laughs> we we do PT in the morning, and then it mostly was. You know, a, a process, and generally speaking, we were uh, working on weekly or bi-weekly publications. So it was, then we go back to, uh, you know, we'd shower up, change into uniform, and then head to the office to figure out what training or what, you know, events were going on and, uh, and who was going to cover what. Usually we'd have to cover photography for ourselves. You know, if you go to cover a story, you're, you're also providing art. And then depending on the you know, day of the publication schedule, we might have to stay uh, until midnight laying the paper out. So it's basically that. I, I don't, there was not nearly the kind of freedom that you get um, as an independent, you know, real journalist. I don't think we um, were pretty constrained by the public affairs officer and the command. Um, like, we're, we're not going to say anything. There weren't going to be any kind of exposés, kind of, you know, exposés yeah. done exactly on on like uh, you know, General So and So is uh, actually a huge corrupt you know power broker stealing money from or you know taking bribes from the local Korean right. population and this didn't happen as far as I know that while I was there but I mean that if it did we would not have broken that right. story <laughs> so but there was a lot I mean I, I did you know when I later on wound up stationed in Kentucky. I was a sports editor uh, for the paper there. Um, also, real weird job. But uh, after I joining the Army. Yeah. But, um, uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, there, there was always kind of a, uh, a, a tension between um, the, the, the side of the office that ran the paper because it was, you know, it tended to be people who wanted to be journalists mm -hmm. and do the right thing. And then the public affairs officer who actually ran mm -hmm. the place and wanted to make sure everything kind of comported with the command's um, vision for, you know, for messaging and things. So it's very Gosh, much like I, it, I, it, I can only imagine, though, that journalists all the time say like, yeah, there's there's this wall between us and like the the PR or the salespeople, of course. And some t and, and there are countless examples yeah. of those sides of the wall, like butting heads and people have lost their jobs. And and uh, games media is no stranger to uh, that tension. Yeah, Jeff, Jeff, Jeff Gersman is an amazing, like the quintessential yeah. games media example of someone kind of butting That's heads it, yeah. and getting thrown out for it, uh, even though he was clearly in the right. Um, I, I, I gotta ask, like, wh now that you, I suppose I, whether it was in something, 
um, like sports editor work in Kentucky or now as a freelancer in the broader games media, um, do you notice like any part of your original experience as a military journalist kind of like bubbling up? Uh, in, in, in terms of, you know what, I haven't thought about this, but you know what, you're actually, yes. Yeah. Uh, and it depends on who you're working for. And I, I won't name names, but there, there, there are constraints I feel that are placed on writing. Uh, and it's based on not like ideological, um, you, you know, uh, censorship or anything like that, like where, where you're not allowed to say what you want to say, but it's more that, you know, certain stories are ignored uh, and it's just based on SEO mm-hmm. and, you know, like what's going to generate clicks and what's not. Um, so there's, it's very difficult. I find to get, um, you know, you don't really as a, as a journalist now have as much leeway or opportunity necessarily. I mean, at, especially at the freelance level, to uh, advocate for for games that nobody's heard of uh, just because it's very hard to make the case that that's going to generate um, enough traffic you know to, to justify the cost so so I mean that's the only thing really I mean as far as you know there being any kind of command message that we have to uh, uh, you know conform to that that's not a part of it at all I've not yeah so. well I, I suppose also in the sense that um like any any kind of like the principles of journalism that you might learn in like a 101 course um if you if you of course you know wanted to be uh you graduated and then you went into the military uh i i can only imagine that like some of the some of the 101 stuff you learned in college uh would would either again bubble up in military journalism uh i mean it does yeah i mean you want to the the what they're called as command information newspapers. Every base has a or it had again twelve year old information, mm-hmm. um, a, a print newspaper, and these are command information newspapers. But they wanted them to look like regular newspapers and read the way that. So you know, AP style is important. Mm-hmm. Uh, principles of reporting are important in terms of you know covering stories that had to do with. Um, you know, changes that were happening on the base or training that was going on or a welcome home ceremony or a, uh, a deployment ceremony. Or, I mean, this is all very like community newspaper type stuff. Um, not, not your Woodward and Bernstein, um, you know, meeting in the parking garage with deep throat kind of thing at all, but uh, you know, still your fundamentals yeah. mattered. Um, so yeah, I think that, that at least your journalism 101 absolutely matters. Well, so one of the one of the biggest questions that always kind of comes to mind when I, I think of my friends or colleagues who uh, uh, came from a background in the military and now have somehow found themselves in games media uh, is just like well what 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 made you fall into games media i i can only imagine that you were um you've been probably a gamer uh a large if not all of your life a large portion of if not all of your life uh but how do you go from military journalist to sports editor to writing for pc games in and war gamer and vice <laughs> yeah it's a real good yeah. question <laughs> i don't know that i can actually answer that uh the, I mean, the one thing that you that you said at the beginning, 
absolutely true. I've, I've been playing games all my life, and that goes back to the Atari 2600. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm, I'm an old bastard <laughs> at this point. Um, but, uh, well, and then I'm not quite Atari 2600 old, but we did get an Atari 2600 because my parents were very, like, they kind of got in on that uh, satanic panic thing in the early or mid 80s. Mm. When the NES came out, and there was this like, oh no, this is a tool of the devil. But my grandmother took pity on us and said, "Well, if, the, if Nintendo's bad, well, they can at least have this." And she got us an Atari. Uh, meanwhile, Dad got us a PC, uh, well, the, a proto PC. Uh, it's called a Vendex. I don't think that brand exists anymore, but um, similar to like a uh, uh, Commodore sixty four mm-hmm. or something like that, and. Um, but yeah, that's, there's been an almost unbroken line, like all the way through the nineties. I mean, I was right on doom when it came out and quake. Um, I played some of the first, uh, so funny hearing someone say like, Nintendo is a tool of the devil, but here have this PC or have this like, well, that's the one thing that was (laughs) the great thing about uh, PC. uh, And I still feel this is kind of the case is that, uh, there's this there's this plausible deniability about the PC where like no this this is for email and for document, right. like for for word yeah. processing, uh, but you can always put this horrifyingly evil <laughs> stuff on it if you want to, so, <laughs> uh, which you know you don't really have necessarily that option of um, certainly not with Nintendo, uh, and and you're limited with uh, PlayStation and, and, and Xbox still. I'll tell you what, let me ask you one more question about like background stuff before we kind of switch into the, the work itself here, which I think will be the meat of this conversation. Um, sure. It, it is fascinating to me. You, you, you went through college. You were a military journalist, uh, sports editor, and I imagine a, a host of things in between. Um, it was only, what, three or four years ago now uh, that you were an intern at Game Informer, much like myself. Uh, yeah. What what made you want to pursue that, especially knowing like I I love the Game Informer crew, but like it's it it has been very curious to see um, guys like you and then uh, my fellow intern back in 2015, uh, Marcus. Uh, you guys are not like fresh faced college kids, uh, and and I I is it was it just something like on the bucket list that you wanted to do? Why'd you Why'd you apply to Game Informer, and what'd you think it was going to give you? So, yeah, this is a bit of an admission. Um, but when I applied for the Game Informer internship, I really wasn't a big Game Informer fan. Like I wasn't super familiar with the magazine. I mean, I, I knew of it, of course, but. The, right, the staff, right. I mean, I, I, I wasn't familiar with the names almost at all. I mean, maybe like Rayner and Andy McNamara. I mean, I knew them uh, from way back. But uh, um, mostly what I wanted was, uh, like, I, I at that point, I'd been working for another site. Uh, I I don't like this site at all, and I'm not going to name them. Um, yeah. <laughs> but... Uh, I had issues getting paid, um, and uh, but basically what I wanted was I, I thought this was an opportunity to sort of um, learn some professional skills in within the industry mm-hmm. and also uh, burnish my own credentials within the industry as mm-hmm. somebody who was serious about you know um, 
about actually writing about games. I'm not just a blogger. I want to be an actual games reporter or right. journalist. So, yeah, I, that's mostly what I wanted. And, and just I, I also kind of wanted to find out whether I wanted to do this or not. Like, is this an industry that I really wanted to get True. into? And it turns out yeah. there's a there's a surprising number of interns who specifically took the Game Informer internship to like figure out do I actually want to do this? Um, one or two of them have ended up in like game dev side of mm-hmm. things, and I know a couple who like have kind of fallen off the face of the earth. I'm sure they're fine, but uh, and it's interesting here. Like I I will have to admit too that like I definitely had read plenty of issues of Game Informer, but like it's one of those things where you start working or trying to work in games media and you suddenly lose all the time in the world to actually digest games. Yeah. Media. yeah. No, it's a forest for so the every, tree situation. hundred percent. Yeah. So every time you apply for something like that, uh, you're just kind of like, I don't know what any of these people have written recently. I hope they don't ask me what my favorite article is. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, and you know, I, in, I did realize I was savvy enough, you know, before, uh, uh, right. Ben called me, um, Reeves uh, to have you know kind of caught up a little bit and found some you know features that I liked and but you know it, it really was kind of um, like I felt like I felt I had enough experience at that point I mean I've been working as a journalist um, you know for more than mm-hmm. fourteen years I think so you know I, I wasn't too worried about that side like but it but it it is a different industry it's a, it's a very different feel than you know in any of the other fields that I've, I've dip my toe in i guess and um yeah this was this was something that like i really kind of like if this doesn't work then fine i'll drop it and uh we'll go someplace else but you know as it turned out i i guess what happened at (laughs) game informer in minnesota was like no i really legitimately love doing this and uh and it's what i want to do it, it, it is a special feeling being able to come into an office and i feel like God, the minute if I get a full time job as opposed to full time freelancing, uh, if if I get to work in an office, I'm just going to like pass out from like the stimulus overload or like just the sheer like happiness of it all because I miss working in an office uh, and I miss being able to like reach out and like communicate with my my peers uh, and that's probably the biggest thing I miss most of all. Like I, I could, I could leave or take, you know, certain editors. I could leave or take certain like things I worked on there, but like just being able to work in an office and like bounce ideas off of each other was, was definitely special. It's so good. And I miss that specifically about Game Informer because in so many other places that I'd worked, that experience had been, uh, yeah, negative. Like the, the work environment had either been toxic. It, look, you know, there's a lot of things that are good to say about the U.S. military and the Army and everything. And I've worked mm-hmm. for some really great people uh, over the course of the time that I was in. Um, but generally speaking, you're not treated – if you're enlisted, you're not treated as somebody who is – uh, you don't have a seat at the table when it comes to figuring out the editorial voice or uh, mm-hmm. or anything. Uh, and, you know, even at newspapers, I, went, I at one point I worked for uh, EPA for a little bit as a contractor to do science writing. Uh, but that was a really weird job with bad management. And um, like I, I mostly felt kind of, uh, you know, adrift 
most of the time having mm-hmm. no idea what you know I was doing in this research and development lab. Uh, and when I walked into Game Informer the first day, and I don't need this doesn't need to become a uh, you know a big you know let's let's uh, reminisce about how great Game Informer yeah, is yeah. or anything, but it really was like the first time that I, I even as an intern. I felt like I want to be here all the time. I, I like mm-hmm. I didn't want to leave at the end of the day. I wanted to get there early. I, I wanted to do more stories or, uh, rather than you know than less. Um, it just because of the people who were there and the way that they have their uh, management structure set up and the people who are involved in it. Um, that I it was the most positive work experience in a, you know in, a, in an office that I'd ever had. So. Um, yeah, I, I, I'm chasing that dragon, man. I want that back. I think it's great. It's, uh, it's interesting hearing you talk about being able to kind of like feel like a, a family or, or a group in that sense. Um, because yeah, that's, that's as a, as a freelancer working from home now, like we, we do miss that certainly. And that, that kind of well enough brings us into, I suppose, the meat of our conversation or we're here talking about war games and and what they say about us as gamers as just regular citizens or uh perhaps even uh the military's own involvement with gaming and i i truly have a lot of respect for uh service members who translate some of that experience into articles uh and and essays and blogs and tying that into like how we look at games like Call of Duty, Battlefield, um, strategy games. And I've wanted to, for a long time now, I've wanted to have a podcast where I can talk about strategy games, um, but not just in the sense of like, oh, how cool are they? Uh, but also like what what they individually say about us as a, a society. So uh, I think for me, especially my like awareness of your writing really starts with um, this great piece you wrote back in 2017, uh, more fantasy, less warfare. Uh, I, I believe this was for vice basically uh, 2017 about service members playing fantasy games like Skyrim and like what kinds of games were service members actually uh, enveloping themselves in? because to this day, there's still a lot of association with call of duty and battlefield and other shooters uh, or combat games, of course, now like uh, Fortnite and Apex, I'm sure, have dug their claws into. Uh, there are military like Fortnite uh, crews, and there are um, groups of uh, service members who their job is to basically be public faces of the military, but in a like digestible format, like in a Fortnite tournament. So uh, when you started writing from this perspective, what was what was the like most surprising part about the games that service members played? Um, so the most surprising part for me, I guess, was uh, that the well, the most surprising part was that there was there was scholarly research kind of going into this. Um, I wasn't mm-hmm. surprised so much um, at the fact that um, these you know, supposedly, you know, realistic, you know, military shooters weren't necessarily quite as popular with the military itself as, um, as you might expect, uh, which is the sort of the crux of the piece. What, what service members wind up playing and what veterans wind up playing 
tends there's the, I mean there's still a lot of popularity with you know Call of Duty or um, uh, Battlefield or anything but what um, this researcher uh, Dr. Jamie Banks at uh, the University of West Virginia had found was um, a lot of um, uh, the respondents in her in her study which covered active duty and, and uh, former service members um, was there's a huge popularity of fantasy themed games and, and specifically MMOs. And they were using games to cope with trauma that they had experienced over the course of uh, either their lives or, or specifically in the course of their service. Um, and some of their stories are absolutely heartbreaking. Um, there was a uh, Navy corpsman who uh, was um, uh, medically discharged for an injury that he had uh, suffered and um, and had started playing, I think it was, it was, it was one of the Final Fantasies, I believe, uh, one of the MMOs, and he uh, always played as a healer uh, because he was very frustrated by the fact that he'd been discharged and couldn't be with his guys anymore. Um, and mm. this healer role made him feel useful again. Um, it, it just... Really, uh, I'd have to pull it up, but I mean, the quote was just what he had put in the survey was heart wrenching. Um, I thought that was that was fantastic, and so uh, you know, and, and the, you know, I, I recalled back on my own you know training and things, and uh, while uh, we were the United States was getting ready to uh, ramp up the war into Iraq and, and invade Iraq in two thousand three. Um, Everybody in the day room was <clears throat> taking original Xboxes down and daisy chaining them together and playing Deathmatch, but it was always Halo um, rather than anything else. So I, I, my Call of Duty dates may be a little bit off. I can't remember if that was out yet. But uh, anyway, I, that was really rewarding, and I thought that was a story that was worth telling. And one of the people you spoke to uh had a really interesting quote that stuck out to me. Uh, an avatar is a visual on-screen representation of a player that can extend identity into the space, although it doesn't always, but definitely extends their agency into the yeah. space. My avatar is an extension of my agency. And that to me sticks out because um, we we talk a lot about agency in uh, non uh, like militarized games too. Um, there, there is a great swell of games that deal with uh, agency over our own characters or our bodies or agency over our, our personal growth. Um, but in the military, of course, agency is not necessarily something you're always afforded. Uh, you're told to, you know, go here, do this, put your life on the line. Um so what what about agency do you feel is important to service members and and why are they finding greater perhaps a greater sense of it in games well i mean i that's it's a good question i i think the games just afford not just service members but anybody kind of this this uh, inflated uh, almost fantastical sense of agency right where you can do so many more things than you otherwise might be able to um Another really great person I spoke to for that story was uh, Lieutenant um, John Bratton, who had uh, he, he just had these great anecdotes about uh, sitting in a uh, either in the back of a truck or in his hut in um, in Afghanistan and looking up at the Hindu Kush mountain range 
and, mm-hmm. and being like, oh, man, wouldn't it be great to go and hike around those things? But no, I'm an army lieutenant. I can't do that. I've got to stay here on the base. And so he'd go back into his, into his hut and play Skyrim and troop around the mountains and that. And, and there he kind of found the agency that he, he, he wasn't afforded based on the, you know, the, the terms of his service and the, you know, the place that he was. It would have been, he would have had to have been a maniac. To go and, uh, to go hiking in the Hindu Kush from you know uh, Kandahar wherever he was, but um, but he found that you know lost sense of agency in Skyrim, and I thought that was that was pretty uh, remarkable. So yeah, um, while you're maybe experiencing times when, when when that agency is curtailed, an agency I think is an important part of the human experience. Like you have to have some kind of agency over what you're. Uh, experiencing to be fully respected as a human being, I think, um, and 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 the the conflict with uh, you know military service means you know yes, I'm part of a bigger thing, but those choices are curtailed necessarily. Um, games become all of a sudden this much more important or potentially more important. Um, you know, it's it's not real, but it, at least there's an experience of that agency that that's important. We um, the word escapism is used a lot, uh, escaping from the the drudgery of military service or or the trauma of it. And uh, do you think maybe the better word to use is agency, um, or do you think that escapism and agency are two very different things when we talk about? Um, gaming's relationship to service members? That's a good question, man. I, I think that, I think it's, I think they're different but related. Um, because I think that, you know, oh, my own perspective on this is that, uh, you know, the military is a job that you take. Mm-hmm. And most of the time, at least in the army, especially if you're uh, in the United States, you're not deployed. When you go to work, you come home and it, it's a job. And, and so games are escapist. It's, to, it's, a play, it's a chance to go someplace else and do something else. Um, when you're deployed, uh, I think it's a, quite a bit different. Where every single place that you, you go, what you eat, what you do, there aren't weekends. You know, you're, you're constantly on mission. And I think exercising even virtual agency... Exercising your agency in a virtual space, the way that Jamie Banks kind of explained it, you know, the, the extension of my agency in a virtual space. Uh, I think that's probably a good reminder uh, and a way to stay sane over the course of 12 or 18 months um, while you don't have, you know, the normal set of uh, options to do that. So so when we're talking about agency, uh, one, one of the things, both in pop media and generally that you hear about is um, commanding officers who feel a sense of ownership or agency over the men that they lead. Um, And you wrote this really great kind of like a a long form preview of a game uh, about people, the people in your squad or platoon and not necessarily the, the mechanization of warfare. Um, What, Tell me about this article and like what your thoughts were originally when you first started finding. I, I don't know the title of the game. If you could remind yeah, me, yeah, sure. Um, Burden yeah. of Command. Um, 
And that's that's being made by uh, Green Tree Games and um, a guy, uh, Luke Hughes, is the director. Um, it's a really interesting project because it, it, aesthetically it looks like a kind of a traditional uh, war game kind of in the, um, uh, let's see, the, the John Tiller software kind of vein. But um, what he wants to make is a role-playing game that has the same choices that a World War II, uh, like a, a buck captain <clears throat> would have to make. And, and mm-hmm. those are, I mean, they've, they've been romanticized a little bit in, in movies like uh, Saving Private Ryan or um, uh, uh, the, the HBO series um, Band, of, Band of Brothers. Band of yeah. Brothers, yeah. Um, and, and those are, are conscious, I think, influences on, on what he's making. But, uh, but he, he's also influenced by his father, who is uh, a serviceman and a historian as well. And um, and also by a guy, Carl uh, um, Marlantes, who wrote a book called What It's Like to Go to War. And that was about Vietnam. Um, basically, yeah, it, war is this insane situation, basically, where you're making, even as a young man or a young woman, uh, you know, as, as an officer, you're making these uh, decisions that, where in movies they tend to be, you know, like either heroic or evil. Um, in reality, they tend to be what's less horrible. Um, mm-hmm. And and the the toll that takes on um, not only you but the, the the people who you're supposed to be commanding is complex and can be terrible. Um, and I liked the way that he was approaching that question, like what. What is it like to go to war? What what does it do to people? Because I, I think fundamentally, war now, especially that it's been industrialized and mechanized, it's a series of experiences that are outside what human beings are meant. Like we're, we, we're not capable biologically of really, uh, most of us aren't anyway, of... Uh, of, of it's it's out it's it's like seeing a, a color outside the visual spectrum or something it, or, mm-hmm. or or the end of a lovecraft story where somebody sees something that that defies geometry it's it's so far outside what the normal human experience is that it is traumatic and terrible um, and the decisions that you make as a as a leader in those situations in, in war are uh costly no matter whether they're good or bad. Um, so I, I was immediately interested uh, in Burden of Command, uh, just based on that and the way that, that uh, Luke Hughes had kind of uh, explained it. Alexis Kennedy is another person who's involved in that project, or at least was, uh, in the kind of concept phase. And, and he had a lot of great stuff to say about it as well. So, yeah. What... um. You mentioned like Saving Private Ryan and Band of Brothers and Saving Private Ryan in particular does in a way tackle the idea of like we're basically sacrificing this entire squad of men um, to go rescue this one uh, other soldier who's who like three or four of his brothers died on D-Day. And is there 
is is that still I, I obviously it's it's been through the Hollywood filter, um, but I'm wondering like what these stark differences are between uh, a decision you have to make in a game like Burden of War, uh, or uh, or a decision that you see Tom Hanks make um, to keep going on with the mission despite having lost like half of his men. Yeah, uh, that's. I mean, I feel like that's as black a box to me as it is to you. Like I've never been in that kind of leadership position myself. Uh, right. But um, it's, I think most of the decisions um, that, that leaders make now have to do with probability. So if you're a, a lieutenant command or a lieutenant colonel or a colonel, and you know you're ordering a, a battalion to take a, a town, and there's a certain um, there's a certain probability of, of there's a there's a certain risk analysis done, and you know probably that a certain amount of soldiers are going to die, you know, taking mm-hmm. this thing, and because it's critical, even if that's a small number of people, you still made that happen. And sent them to their deaths. I mean, even if you didn't know, like it was, if it was five or ten percent. I mean, that's, um, and that's. I, I don't think easy to deal with, and for anybody that I think it is easy to deal with. I mean, you've got to be a sociopath of some kind. I mean, there's no way that you that can't haunt you, right? So, mm-hmm. so mo- I think most of them are more mundane, and they're they're probably protected behind. Um, several levels of command where, okay, well, we just got this order. We've got to do this thing. And so we're, we're going to do it. Um, you know, by the time you get down to the company level, the, the captain and lieutenant or the, the, the uh, staff sergeant, you know, squad leader, uh, they don't have a choice. Well, they, I guess they do, but I mean, you know, we're going to go do this thing. Um, mm-hmm. Even if you know that it's going to mean, and that's, that's something that I don't have any insight into, really, experientially anyway. Uh, but it's a fascinating thing to me. It happens. And it's happened for thousands of years, you know? <laughs> like, uh, yeah. it, it's, it's, it's a long time, uh, or as long as human history has been recorded, we have decisions like this being made and people doing it, um, as, it's a, as it sounds. What did you make of uh, the dev was Kennedy, right? Yes. So oh, excuse what, me. Uh, what did Hughes, you make, uh, Luke Hughes? Hughes. Um, so, so Kennedy said he was excited by the prospect of setting out to be one kind of leader and finding yourself becoming someone else entirely. Is a, is a line you've got in this story, um, and, and obviously, like I don't expect you to to you know know the the battlefield experience, but uh, I, I'm curious, like, what you made of the way a game like that translates a, a commander's growth uh, when he's he's forced to make decisions like that on a relatively regular basis. Um, basically, like, how do we, how do we, how is he gamifying um, personal growth like that? Mm. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm definitely eager to see the final result of what, uh, um, uh, Luke Hughes and his team and uh, and Alexis Kennedy uh, come up with because it it really is kind of the way that they unfailingly describe it is as a crucible 
and uh, you know it's a the you put a chemical into the crucible and apply heat to it and it comes out as something else and um, I think in, in in the case of uh, a combat scenario what it's not always uh, predictable the way that that some there are people who are going to crack and bend and 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 flee and become um, uh, horrified and, and and unable to function in that uh, situation, mm-hmm. which I think is the rational reaction in most cases. Uh, and then there are going to be people who become, you know, uh, much more. They're able to focus in on exactly what needs to happen and 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 and. Uh, ignore everything else and move through it and lead uh, people who may not otherwise, you know, have the ability on their own to do it. Um, So yeah, treating war as this crucible and, but what that kind of implies is that no matter what it is trauma, it it is some kind of trauma um, and and you're changed by it irrevocably. So uh, that's what I'm I'm looking forward to seeing how that translates into game terms. Um, uh, How they're going to pull that off, I don't know. But um, but it is an interesting project. It's something that I'm just glad that they're taking it seriously enough to try. Right. It's one of those things I I feel like I'm glad it exists. And even though no game will be perfect, I'm just glad that like I'm probably going to buy that. Honestly, I, I, I want to absorb that different kind of experience um because it 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 feels much more important than another you know call of duty through the lens of hollywood shooter but uh let's let's switch gears a little bit to what i think will be a really important note to tackle when we talk about like well what do war games say about us um you wrote this really cool pretty exhaustive uh feature on like the public's obsession with militaristic looking things or tactical. I love that term. Tactical. Um, that was one I did with uh, Kelsey Atherton. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and there's a quote in here that I think maybe really is the kernel of all of this. Uh, what is the modern gun? It is an avatar of the user built to comfort and capability and aesthetic consideration, whether that be a barrel heavy with semi-functional doodads or a bright and shiny case signifying time spent in-game. So why are we obsessed with guns and military shit looking cool in games? That That's a real interesting question. I don't know that I have an answer, but I mean, but you can track the same thing happening. Um, and I think this is what we tried to do with the story was to, to, to kind of parallel the, the development of this kind of accessory, like this aftermarket accessories market for uh, real world firearms. So mm-hmm. the, the Picatinny rail is, is, is what Kelsey kind of identified as the, as the watershed moment where all of a sudden and this is why, by the way, the AR-15 is so popular is because the Picatinny rail is, has been kind of a, a standard feature of those. And it's this rail system that you can attach accessories to on, on, a, on a rifle. Um, obviously, that gives you a bunch of options. You can, you can move things around. These aren't the kind of firearms that, that looked cool in the you know, Wild West. You know, the, hmm. the, uh, the old Colts and... Uh, um, you know, the six shooters that uh, 
that had the, the inlaid handles and um, uh, engraving and, and things on them. These are these are very cold and weirdly uh, uh, angular looking things, mm-hmm. but they're very personalized. With uh, you know, with you can you can attach a, a, the the site that you want wherever you want it and uh, different grips. Um, you can swap out the buttstock on a lot of on a lot of real world weapons, and um, while that's happening on the range in the consumer firearms market, um, the same thing starts happening in video games. And it's actually quite a bit later in video games. I think it's t- two thousand three. We start seeing weapon skins and um, and customization happening, and and it has a lot to do with Counter Strike. In, in games, um, mm-hmm. that really I think got the ball rolling. Um, I've uh, I've had to do I've had to do PC gamers like the most expensive CS:GO, CSGO skins, skins. Right, yeah, uh, and they've been doing that for and Valve's been trying that with you know hats in uh, in Team mm-hmm. Fortress and things, but with guns it's it's real weird. It's it's in every game now. You can always get weapon skins. Um, I think it's weird because to me they all look terrible. But um, <laughs> they're all they're all very gaudy and uh, garish. So well, it's it's this thing of like from from my inexperienced perspective, what p- comes out to me is that, like you said, uh, wild west weapons are these flowing, you know, inlaid carving kind of things. Yeah, these beautiful handles, lines to them, yeah. They're, yeah, and and like even though they're they're still instruments of death, of course, but they are, in a sense, like instruments of death in a moment of passion, or at least what like we you know more commonly associate them, like you know cowboys and bandits and sheriffs in yeah. in one street towns. Um, there there aren't you know massacres. The you can't you can't kill more than six people with a six shooter, uh, but then. But then, you know, along comes an AR-15 or some other modernized, cold, mechanical-looking, angular weapon, like you say. And uh, it, it is allowing you to, to impact much more life with a much more cold expression. Yeah, it you is. Know? It's just they're, they are death machines. And there's, there's nothing – I don't know why anybody pretends that's not what the – what they are. I mean, I, I remember the first time I got handed an M16 in basic training and there was some, I, I, I'd fired guns before in my, in my life, but there was something very weirdly cold and um, sort of chilling. Mass uh, produced uh, yeah. maybe, yeah. Well, there's the mass production of it, the fact that it's all blued in this black finish. There's no question about what this thing's for. It's not for hunting mm-hmm. deer, honestly. It, 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 you don't have to do anything other than touch one to realize uh, that that's like this is for killing people. That's the only purpose this thing has. So, what do you um, what do you make of John Phillips touched on this uh, when I ran his recording for the ten ninety nine? But what do you make of the the new modern warfare reboot and? Um, you read the previews or you listen to people talking about the previews and there's already this sort of dichotomy um, being built uh, between 
the the story designers who say like okay we want to take it a, even a step further with how quote unquote realistic and grounded we're making the story it's not so much about gunning down 30 dudes in the streets of New York it's about gunning down four guys in a very tightly compact building uh moving from room to room very slowly with night vision uh but then on the other side of that you have the weapon designers at a studio like Infinity Ward uh, following that team and telling journalists and, and members of the media, we've got the coolest fucking guns you've ever seen, man. Like, they're, they're so cool. They can, like, see through walls and you can paint them purple. And just, like, what? how do we make sense of that? I, I don't know that we can. Like, I, I and this is the, this is always going to be the case with a game that has to have a... M- budget above a hundred million dollars and then make that budget mm-hmm. back. I think, um, I don't know. I, I like, I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic about the next COD. I, I, I've never been a big call of duty, uh, fan. Um, but I'm interested to see what they do with this story. I, I think that modern warfare, uh, that's been, uh, they've done some genuinely interesting things. And, um, mm-hmm. and, and, and so I think, this is worth kind of checking out. I, the, the, the footage I've seen so far looks more like real military operations than I think I've ever seen even in something like Arma. Um, and um, I don't know, CODs, it, look, the, 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 however horrible everything is, and like, you know, we're talking about war games and what those things uh, you know, represent and, and the scale and, and devastation of war. Look, Call of Duty's fun. And it, mm-hmm. it it's terrible <laughs> to uh, sometimes tr- to try to try to reconcile what you believe about war, what you think about guns, with the fact that it's fun to shoot guns on on a, 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 a TV or, or PC screen. But um, I don't know. I, I'm I'm cautiously optimistic about that. I, I know that it's it's all, there's always going to be this monetization thing where look, this is this is an angle people like, so we're going to exploit it. Um, but does that mean anything to, uh, with respect to our like relationship with, you know, our casual relationship in the United States with guns? I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, I think, a really good argument. Like, I don't want to have a gun. I, I like shooting them. I, I'm playing a ton of the Division Two right now, which is a politically uh, <laughs> very screwed up game. I've- but. Uh, a very Ubisoft political game that like the division two says Tom Clancy on the box. So I know that like, I need to kind of turn my, you know, feeling sensing brain off a little bit. Yeah. It's, it's going to (laughs) be fucked up a little bit. So you raise that very interesting point. The, the emergence of loot shooters, uh, I feel has played into a little bit of the, the emergence of tactical, uh, the whole crux of these games aside from like clearing a map is of course uh being able to show off like yo i've got this specific gun um of course in a in a in a fantasy game like destiny they're able to go out like all out and and have a a gun that like looks like the uh, the ass end of an alien but uh 
in a shooter like Division Two, of course, they're slightly more grounded. Even though I'm, I, I haven't finished the game. I'm sure there's some fairly bonkers-looking weapons. Yeah, but I mean, they're all uh, based on real world. Like, I got a they're all based, exotic yeah. called Pestilence the other day, and it's just it's it's a M two four nine with some duct tape around it. I mean, like that's that's an exotic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> What do you what do you think though about like the the emergence of loot shooters and how they've kind of recontextualized politics about guns and just the the obsession and need to collect? Yeah, uh, you know what I wonder which like which is the chicken and which is the egg in this situation. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it may be that this gun customization trend, which started a good ten years before loot shooters ever showed up. Um, that may have been the sort of spark that um, that made loot shooters work. Um, I don't know. Uh, I guess um, I, I, I like that Destiny 2 uh, does kind of take it in a completely different artistic direction. It's completely fantastical. Um, it, it, it's... For all its flaws, it's a it's a fun game. I've had a ton of fun, mm-hmm. especially playing with friends. And yeah, there, there's always this: I need the better gun, and it, that's probably not the most healthy uh, <laughs> feeling to have. But uh, you know, on the other hand, for as many hundreds of hours as I poured into these things, I, I don't like. I and I've spent hundreds of hours on ranges. You know, while I was uh, you know active duty. Um, and just in rifle qualification, I, I've never wanted to own a gun. So I, I, I can't say that, you know, it's a, uh, a super negative thing. And in fact, it may be a good, you know, uh, stress relief uh, or, mm-hmm. or it may be a good way for people who might otherwise want to purchase weapons to get close enough to, uh, you know, that's enough. If I can play the next Ghost Recon game or the next Call of Duty and, and shoot some guns, then yeah, that's that's enough for me. So, I mean, I, I don't know which of those, you know, arguments is the right one. But um, personally speaking, I, yeah, I've got no interest in owning a firearm. I'll ask you, I'll ask you one more kind of questions surrounding this before we uh, dive into some of like alternative war games uh, outside of World War Two. Um, I the article you wrote about this raises a really great like kind of historical point of it used to be that games like original halo or uh i suppose original call of duty they started out pretty simply like there's one assault rifle there's one handgun there's one sniper there's not really any variant to that or if there is a variant it's like here's a full auto assault rifle here is a like single shot or a burst shot uh and the now that we have loot shooters like The Division or Destiny or uh, any number, what have you, it feels like, of course, the, the variations on all of those has has expanded immensely. Uh, what do you what do you make of that change in like game development design um, and what it says about uh, uh the the wanting to make a gun or like your collection of of weapons and tools look cool part of it is a uh audience that's become much more um accustomed to the accoutrement of war 
mm-hmm. over the past 18 years, which has been uninterrupted war in the United States. Like that, we, we've had that that long. Um, and uh, and so some of these things are becoming very familiar, like the, the uniforms and equipment and um, the way that, you know, soldiers hold their rifles. And you know, we, we've seen this for, you know, for for many people. This has been their entire lives. In fact, there are people who are now serving in Afghanistan who were born uh, after uh, while their fathers were or, or mothers were, were first deployed there. Yeah, and fighting the same fighting war the same 18 wars years 18 later. years later. And in, in fact, sometimes their parents are. And this is always kind of treated as a, a nice, hey, look, a nice human interest story. Uh, a mother yeah. <laughs> and her son are in the same uh, combat zone together. Platoon, it's yeah. messed up. But uh, so I think part of it's the, just the familiarity that's happened uh, over the last you know, almost two decades. Um, I think also there's this, it's a axis for player expression. Um, if a, a gun doesn't feel the way that you want it to, you can swap the sights out or you can change the handling a little bit. I mean, so that customizability uh, allows players to feel uh, more um, uh, control and customiz- customizability. It gives them something to work towards. If there's, if you want to put a grind in and, and give them some more incentive to play, I mean, it makes sense. I, I can see, you know, wh- where that comes from. Um, mm-hmm. Do I prefer this to I don't know Doom, where there's you know nine weapons and they all do something. There's a BFG and a shotgun and uh, I don't know. I mean, it, yeah. it's a different it's a different design philosophy. I, I I've got to say uh, for me, Doom 2016 is probably one of the best games I've played in the last ten years. But um, yep. I don't know. I, I, I like I said, I have a ton of fun with Division Two as well. So. So uh, then I guess let's segment into our last part here. I, you know, my, my uncle served in the Korean War, but I really have to admit, I don't really know the first thing about what that kind of experience must have been like. And you yourself, you've written uh, at least two articles about uh, games set in either the Korean War or the Vietnam War. And we've gotten, we've gotten a number of, relatively like popular like vietnam uh cold war and like i guess late term korean war uh games uh but what what are the games set in the korean or vietnamese wars uh what do they look like what does the experience look like and how does it differ from the standard theater of something like world war ii um well i think you know world war ii uh, the Korean War and the Vietnam War, uh, when it comes to games, what they look like most are movies about those conflicts. Um, mm. And that's an issue, at least the mass market games. Um, where war games, I think, kind of come in to fill the gap is that these are trying, and they always have. And this is kind of, it's funny that we were just talking about loot shooters and kind of the, the, the games as a service type games, um, which are meant to be played theoretically for years or potentially forever if you're thinking like Warframe or or, uh, Rainbow Six Siege. Um, The first games to really do that were hardcore military strategy games um, like uh, Advanced Squad Leader or um, 
you know some of some of the the, the, the earliest war games um, you would take a scenario like uh, the punch bowl or um, uh, the Yadrang Valley in Vietnam and play that scenario over and over and over again and it's something that I'm really hoping that I can uh, spend some uh, you know future time really looking into I, I'd like <laughs> ultimately to write a history about this because uh, strategy games came out of uh, actual military training doctrine. Um, they're, they're built on trying to recreate um, Pentagon strategy uh, and, and, and turn it into a, a game that you could play uh, and, and test different ideas against. Uh, that's that's in fact how a lot of these ideas still are are, are tested within you know uh, uh, military uh, doctrinal scholars and people who are creating those policies. So uh, and and you know fast forward forty years and what we've learned from games is now reinforming military policy. It, it's it's turned into this kind of um, Darth Vader meeting. Uh, Obi Wan Kenobi and, and say now I am the master sort of thing. Um, so, but it's I think that's an interesting story, and I'm, I'm hoping to do some like actual legit scholarship into that in the next year or so. But um, I'm not sure I'm even going with this point actually. But uh, but what we've got is like, the the how how do how do games look? I think where if you want to get a really accurate um, look at what combat looked like um, in those conflicts you probably don't want to go to games um, they, they their point of reference and, and where any of the designers have gone to for um, for designing those games whether it's uh, you know rising storm Vietnam or um, and, and by the way there's very very few games about the Korean War um, almost vanishingly few and most of them are flight simulators why do you uh, why do you think that is? Uh, because I, it's a game that Americans don't like to talk about. Uh, it's it's an embarrassing one. It's one where we killed a lot of people with napalm, and um, uh, it's it's a very awkward point in American history that uh, right. the, the, it, it re- represents a, a kind of inflection point between uh, uh, the. World War II and the and the Cold War as it kind of typified the rest of the 20th century, and uh, our relationship with uh, the Soviet Union completely flipped, and it's very difficult to explain in a in a simple narrative. So it's just not the kind of war that. Uh, also, most of the stories are super sad and terrible, and a lot of people yeah. died. So. <laughs> So it's that. what it, it it's funny you raise the points about um, Star Wars and Vader saying to Obi Wan like you know I I am the master now uh, and and how strategy games have now evolved into video game video games uh, I I have the Dungeons and Dragons like official art book somewhere in my closet. Sure. And uh, I, I forget the actor's name, but the the guy who played Grand Moff Tarkin, uh, the the evil general who's like the one guy who you know can kind of keep a leash on Vader. Uh, he himself was a strategy gamer back like way before Warhammer was ever a thing. Um, these were like you know ca- cast die 
metal figures like trying to recreate uh, uh, like famous colonial battles or uh, or perhaps like famous battles of ancient history. Uh, and I mean, I, I can only imagine you yourself, since you're such a strategy gamer, you've probably delved plenty into stuff like Warhammer or tabletop uh, strategy games in general, right? Uh, I would have loved to. I painted a bunch of lizard men and uh, wood elves uh, when I was a teenager. Just uh, never had enough uh, friends. Um, oh, I, I feel that. I feel that. <laughs> also, I kind of lived in a remote area in upstate New York, and so yeah. just, we didn't have a game store around. Um, but yeah, my, my brother uh, Zach and I uh, we, we played a bunch of uh, Warhammer. But it's funny that you mentioned. Um, it, that wargaming does go back that far and further. H.G. Uh, Wells, in fact, um, uh, I, I think he's the first one that I that I know of who came up in the sort of modernish era. Uh, he, they they had tin soldiers, and uh, yeah. and tried to come up with a set of rules with dice uh, to govern having a battle with them. And this would have been around the end of the nineteenth century, I think. And uh, so. We go go back to you know H.G. Wells and the War of the Worlds. I, I think I think that's the first like. Yeah, of course, you can go back to chess and go and you know, these other games that are meant to represent war. But um, you know, in the last hundred odd years, yeah, H.G. Wells was kind of the OG uh, war gamer. It's funny to think people people very easily forget that, and I honestly had no idea that uh, the Grand Moff Tarkin actor would ever have been interested in something like that. But it does speak to, I suppose, the ubiquity and popularity of wargaming and why uh perhaps a site like like you write for wargamer uh and you we think about like niche sites like uh maybe that maybe they cover jrpgs strictly or maybe they only cover music games strictly uh but wargaming there's never going to be a shortage of those uh maybe the genres will change and maybe the way things are portrayed has changed or maybe the angle uh is changed but uh we're we're certainly never going to lack for them right no no it's uh, you know if you just wanted to stick with history uh you know even if you were to stick with the 20th century there are hundreds Literally hundreds of wars and battles, thousands, uh, uh, countless thousands of battles that can be uh, uh, brought to life in these. And now, I mean, this depends all on your interest in, in which, you know, uh, you know, area of the world or what era. But, you know, I mean, we'll always have wargaming is a niche hobby and uh, wargaming on, on, on PC or anywhere else is, is you know, similarly niche. Um, but uh, there's there's a devoted audience to it, and there's there's a few developers that most that are not household names, but are to the people who are in the hobby. Uh, John Tiller Software, Gary Grigsby, uh, are just a couple. Uh, Slytherin Matrix Software, um, they they come out with a bunch of scenarios every year, a couple a couple new games every year, uh, and they have. This is just going to keep going. And what's funny is that these are probably the games that have changed the least and the slowest uh, out of you know any genre that you can imagine. I mean, platformers or uh, you know real time strategy games even uh, have changed a ton. But but war games are, I mean, pretty close 
to the way that you would have played a, a war game by Avalon Hill on uh, with cardboard markers on a on a tabletop in 1972. So you know there, there's an interesting thing there, and the, and the the audience also is a little on the older side. I, I'm I'm probably on the older side when it comes to uh, you know games media now, but uh, when it comes to covering war games, I'm a youngster. Uh, most of the guys that are uh, involved in wargaming really? are in their 50s, 60s, or, or, or above. So it's an interesting uh, wing of, like, if, if you kind of consider it under the whole umbrella of video games. Uh, yeah, this is kind of the, the there's there's a bunch of uh, granddads and great uncles and, uh, you know, who, who knows what else. But, I mean, that's kind of the, the um, I don't know, the VA wing of, of video games right now. Well, Ian, thank you so much for joining us here. Uh, I, I <laughs> we covered, we were just saying, we just covered a, a shit ton of ground there. Um, and most of all, I just hope that like listeners of the 1099 get some new kernel in their head to think about like, like I did not know that a lot of uh, war gamer uh, coverage was done by people of that age range. Uh, my my experience tells me, of course, that like it must be a variety because I, I would play Warhammer with friends my age and such. But that's so that's just very fascinating, and uh, uh, I I hope that maybe as of course, like we just said, war games we're never gonna lack for them. So perhaps the next time people uh, pick up a new one, be it a strategy or a shooter or what have you, um, they're able to think about it in a a slightly more contextualized way. So Ian, uh, thank you. And where can people find your work? Uh, Well, I'll usually tweet everything out uh, and you can find me on Twitter at iBoudreau. Otherwise, you know, check for me uh, on weekends. I'm usually at PC Games N. Um, otherwise you can see me at PC Gamer or uh, anywhere else but yeah Twitter is usually the best place to find my stuff well Ian man it has been an honor and a pleasure and I I can't ever thank you enough for uh, giving me this perspective Joseph thank you so much for having me on I really appreciate it this was a, a super fun conversation 